0: With our cities burning, both physically and emotionally, rage, hatred, violence, looting, all in the wake of the COVID-19 pandemic, we now have another pandemic on our hands, exposing deep rifts in our society. We're all wondering, is there a solution? Hi, this is Simon Jacobson, and I will be speaking about this current crisis, what we can do about it. The program is titled, The Jewish Response to Racism. Timeless lessons about growing through oppression. We all agree, when I say we all agree, I mean civil people, logical people i'm not talking about anybody that considers themselves or has particular criminal inclinations whatever the reason may be that law and order is vital for any society so when we see any act any wanton act of violence whether whatever direction it's coming from whether it's the police or to the to the to human beings that they are supposed to protect. Specifically the case, what we've all seen with the horrific act of a police officer, yes, killing Mr. Floyd in Minneapolis or any other form of injustice. This is the reason human beings create law and order in order to preserve, to protect, to deter and to punish And bring to justice anyone that defies or breaks the order. This is across the board. Now obviously there are always reasons. People have reasons, excuses for their behavior. But there has to be a system of law and justice. At the same time, yes, we need to address people's complaints. That's why in any healthy system, there's the right to protest. There's the right to demand justice, to demand any other form of treatment that each human being deserves as our Constitution of the United States declares that all men are created equal and have inalienable rights. All. All people are created equal. And yet we see this outbreak. And again, right in the wake of another pandemic and it's rattling us all. What do we do? What do we do? Some argue there's no real long-term solution. You can put out the fires, you can calm things down, but they're still brewing very strong negative energy. And every few years, God forbid, there'll be another eruption, as we've seen in the past, and that there's really no long-term solution. Racism is part of human nature. There are those that accept that. Others say, we need to go to war. We need to battle. We need to go to war. And yet others say, just accept the facts, surrender, and try to make the best of it. There's, of course, the option of escapism and denying and ignoring the whole thing. Are any of these really long-term solutions. I would like to submit something that's so obvious and which is why we often ignore it and that is like in anything in life you want to see what formulas work. Now we know we can experiment or we can look at history. We actually have a history and particularly the Jewish people We're talking about a history, 3,800-year history of oppression, of enslavement, of discrimination, of racism, of anti-Semitism. And not just theoretical. That took millions of lives. Executions, expulsions, genocides, holocausts, pogroms. From the beginning of time. If you want to go all the way to the beginning. Cain killed Abel right in the beginning of Genesis. Genesis. Half the human race, the two children of Adam and Eve at the time. Out of jealousy, out of hatred. So we have a long history, and we can learn much from this history, relevant to our times today. When when President Nixon visited China in the early 70s, China, for the first time, opened up to the Western world somewhat. So Western journalists had the first opportunity to ask questions. They interviewed Zhao lai who was the prime minister, after Mao Zedong had died. And they asked him this question, what do you think about the American Revolution? And in the classic way, he responded, it's too early to tell. Because the American Revolution at that time was 250 years old, a little less, 1776. And Chinese civilization goes back 1,500 years, 1,800 years, 2,000 years. Well, the Jewish history goes back almost 4,000 years. When you begin from Abraham, we're talking about 3,800 years. And it's documented. Just open up a Bible and then open up the rest of the history books. So, what happened? to this nation called the Jews i consider myself a proud jew so i think now more than ever there's a lesson and a message for everyone i've heard from many people who visit the dalai lama and when he asked them who are you and where you come from they say they're jewish he always asks the same question how did you make it how did you survive all that persecution for thousands of years and not just come out not just survive thrive of course, it's very relevant because he's in exile from his Tibetan homeland. So this is what we need to look at. Both for short-term and long-term, but primarily long-term solutions. What do we do about racism? What do we do about its effects on people? What does someone do who feels persecuted and oppressed? Not just feels, is actually Oppressed. African-Americans, the black community, many of them are descendants of slaves who are unjustly brought to this country against their will, enslaved, most disgusting and uh, inhumane fashion. And that's part of their history. So how do you address all this? Well, we go, as I said, to the best teacher of all, history, the wisdom and experience that comes through, through the actual living through these challenges and seeing what happens. And what happens to the Jewish people? Not only did they rise, become leaders. And I'm not saying this to pull rank. It's, facts are on the ground. Some people are resentful of it. Anti-Semitism continues. It's not been conquered, unfortunately. Become leaders, Nobel Prize winners disproportionate to their numbers, built a beautiful country in Israel, one of the most powerful countries, technology, leaders in so many different areas. Given the ability, especially the gift that the blessings of freedom that have allowed them to further explore because they don't have to run for their lives. So what is the formula? And what is the driving engine behind it? So, let's just establish what happened the Jewish people 3,332 years ago were enslaved in the first documented institutional slavery and bondage by the Egyptians right, the beginning of uh, the book of Exodus the famous story of Exodus for 210 years they suffered and then they were freed, redeemed the famous story of Exodus what came of them? So there's one verse in the book of Exodus right in the beginning that says, as they were oppressed, they thrived and they flourished. Oppression actually made them grow. And when they left Egypt, as much as they were enslaved and tortured and killed and mistreated completely, they became a great nation. It forged them into a nation. And they came to Sinai and received the mandate, which we call the Torah, the divine blueprint for life, the fundamentals of civilization. With all flaws, and every human being has their setbacks and has their challenges, they established a code of law. They followed the code of law, the divine code of law that was given to them, and that has changed the world. Many have documented in books and in articles and so on how it's affected all of the universe, including the birth of Christianity and then the birth of Islam. And many of the principles that we so cherish today are based on these biblical axioms, on the Ten Commandments, the seven universal Noahide laws. So how did they manage that? How did they address all the anger, all the rage, all the injustice they experienced? Well, clearly, they did not allow themselves to be defined by their suffering. Their identities were not going to be formed and shaped by being oppressed. They were oppressed and they suffered, but did not see themselves as sufferers. They saw it as part of a bigger picture and it turned them into greater people. Think of the story of Joseph Joseph is sold by his own brothers into slavery. 22 years. They almost killed him, but then they sold him into slavery, ends up in Egypt. When they finally reunite, you can imagine how Joseph should be seething. And he had all the power to do anything he wished to them. He was the second in command, the viceroy. And the brothers were so embarrassed. There's no words to describe if you read those verses. And what does Joseph say to them? Calm, collected. He says, you did not do this to me. God sent me here. To save the world. To save you. Because he led the enterprise. During the great famine. Of gathering. And distributing and selling grain. It was God that sent me here. How did he have that presence of mind? That composure. Not one feeling. Not one negative feeling to what his brothers did there. We will discuss what. Is at the heart of this. But clearly. Clearly. The reaction was not revenge, not anger, not burning down cities, not looting, not responding with violence to violence, not responding with crime to crime, rising to a greater place. Not forgetting. He wasn't in denial. He knew exactly what had happened. But understanding there's a bigger narrative. And understanding that God runs the show. And though the brothers... And any anyone that does a crime is responsible for their crimes. It's not all they're off the hook. The individual is never going to behave like a victim, because it's our own dignity. It's my life story, and I will become a greater person as a result. This is clearly the lesson, and this is the lesson that went through history. It wasn't a one-time thing, an exception. Thirty-eight hundred years, as I said. To the point that Viktor Frankl developed an entire psychology he developed it before the holocaust but it was confirmed in the holocaust logotherapy man's search for meaning recognizing that those that have purpose and meaning in life it gives them another completely dimension of strength not they suffer less but they have something some resource something in their arsenal that allows them to somewhat transcend and move ahead and move forward and what happened when the Jews left Egypt? They left. finally left Egypt. Listen to this. They're going, now they're out of, the, uh, out of their slavery, marching toward the promised land. But then they are confronted yet with another challenge, the Red Sea or the Reed Sea. Pharaoh had his regrets. He begins pursuing. He had all this free labor. Why is he letting them go? He pursues the Jews. Now the Jews are stuck between a rock and a hard place the Egyptians pursuing them in the back, the water before them. What do they do? They break into four camps, tells us the Bible, the Torah, and elaborated in the Talmud. Some said, let's go to war. Let's go to war with our oppressors. A second group said, no, let's surrender. We have nowhere to go. You know what? At least we were alive. We were slaves, but we were alive. So let's subject ourselves back Surrender, back to slavery. A third group said, let us pray to God. And a fourth group said, let's commit suicide. We'll jump into the water. It's not worth living this way. Are there any other options? So they turn to Moses. Moses turns to God. And God says, all these are wrong. They're, They're not options. God responds. So Moses says, so what should we do? What should they do? He says, one word God says, Vayisouu. Travel forward. I told you to go towards Sinai, toward the promised land. Just follow. Forge ahead. Move forward. Don't get caught up in philosophical debates. Don't go to war, because then you continue to become, in some way, a victim. You could either be a victim by surrendering, or you could be a victim by fighting. That means you're still haunted by your oppressor. So don't go to war. To surrender is definitely not an option either. Back to slavery? No. Third option to pray? Pray is good, but it's not enough. You need action. Suicide? Escapism? Absolutely not. By yourself, move forward. Reach dig deeper. Take your faith, your trust in me, says God, and forge ahead. And that's what the people did. And the sea split. Forging ahead, it's the attitude, it's a psychological attitude of movement, of feeling empowerment, of feeling the dignity of who you are and your destiny and realizing you're never stuck and you don't need to surrender, you don't need to fight. Is there truth to all four? Yes. But ultimately it's about moving forward, forging ahead. And this has been the story of the Jewish history from then till this day. The Holocaust a third of the Jewish people were decimated. You'd think, it's all over. how many obituaries were written? The greatest and the best teachers, leaders, rabbis, community leaders, and the rest that did survive were broken, demoralized. And yet, you could call it a miracle, the impossible. Not only did they survive, they rebuilt. The pain and anguish, of course it was there. But there was a deeper resource. If you saw, they moved forward, they forged ahead. Of course, we need to understand what is it that they have that we can replicate in our own selves that allowed them to have that power that Joseph had, that the people had, that the Holocaust survivors had. And throughout history, whatever happened, they were never defined by their suffering. There was always something greater beating inside their heart and chest beating inside their soul and that is the key not to define ourselves whether it's defining ourselves by being enslaved or defining ourselves by fighting the oppressors if that's your experience you control your destiny that is the key element here so what is it then so what, what gives one that power The answer is defining life itself and our purpose in life. Why we are here. What the Jewish people knew, and every one of us has access to that. Every human being on earth knew that we are not self-made people. The Ten Commandments begins, I am your God. There was a higher force, a higher reality that created the universe with plan and design and placed us here on a mission an indispensable mission, created each human being in the divine image and said you have a divine mission to fulfill that you and only you can accomplish. Whatever happens in life, that can never be taken from you. So when you have that type of inner identity, clear, focused, and you see your parents and you see your community driven by that, that is more powerful than anything that happens to you. Whether it's pleasant things, Or negative things. Because those things don't shape you. You experience them. But they're part of a narrative. Part of a journey. Joseph understood that perfectly. He grew up in the home with his father Jacob. And he had a grandfather Isaac and a great grandfather Abraham. And what was the spirit of their teachings? Of their life, not just teachings. Was we are agents of the divine in this world to make this a virtuous world. A beautiful world. A garden. Yes, there's plenty of hostility and corruption and selfishness. But our purpose is here, is to bring justice, to bring love, to bring unity in a fragmented universe. That is the purpose, not just incidental. So of course you're going to face at times tremendous hostility, tremendous challenges, those that want to exploit and those that want to dominate self-interest to the point of injustices, murders, and so on. They all understood it. Every Joseph understood it. Every one of the children of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob understood it. Was it easy? No. Was it painful? Of course. It broke their spirits in many ways. But there was always that spark. Knowing the story. Knowing that we are forging ahead. Knowing that you are created in the divine image and nobody can take it from you because no one gave it to you. Only God. When you know that, not just as a philosophy in a book, an abstract idea, but you know it deep inside of you, in every fiber of your being, just as you breathe oxygen, that idea of sense of purpose, meaning, mission, driven life, that sense of urgency is 24-7 with you, that changes everything. That creates the focus that whatever happens... No matter how painful, how much suffering, oppression, persecutions, discrimination, anti-Semitism, racism, does not define you. What defines you is your divine image. And that divine image is what carried them. So even in the throes of the abyss of the darkness of Egypt, they knew there's a promise, we will get out of this place. Were they challenged? Of course. There were times that they wanted to give up interestingly which is not for now it was the women that had even deeper faith than the men the faith in the promise the faith in your own dignity the faith in the divine power you have as a result of the divine image in which you were created that kept them going and ultimately they prevailed Egypt is a very small country today the great Egyptian empire is gone the Jewish people are still here Tell, tell me, what does that mean? That it's not materialism. It's not power. It's not armies. Not weapons. It's not brute strength that dominates. For the moment, yes. Spirit is always more powerful than matter. Sometimes it takes time to see it. But if you believe in it, and you know it in you, inside of you, completely know it, it's part of who you are, it gives you the ability To transcend anything. And that's why all those powerful empires that we have heard of, not one of them still exists. We don't even know who their descendants are. Whether it was the Egyptian Empire or the Syrian Empire or the Babylonian Empire or the Persian Empire or the Greek Empire, the Roman Empire, the Ottoman, Spanish Empire. And I mention them all because the Jewish people were persecuted by each one respectively. And killed discriminated against, exiled, their temple destroyed, and it only made them stronger. How does it make them stronger? Because they have something that is greater than anything that could happen to them. That force. So they're not defined or shaped by you, so move forward. That's what gives you that power. Yes, they came to that stuck place and they all began to wonder what to do. But then they got the instruction and they never looked back. The morale of Prague says that when the Jews went and left Egypt, they didn't weren't just freed physically. They were freed psychologically, emotionally, and spiritually. They became the status of a free human being. Freedom is not just getting rid of the shackles and the chains and the oppressor. That's the technical part of it. You can get out of prison and still be a prisoner in your own mind, in your own heart, in your own soul. They became a free human being that they would never again psychologically emotionally and spiritually be subject to serve another and even when they were forced to they remained free within you could not enslave their spirits and souls Mordechai would not bow to Haman we don't bow he says we don't bow to men men or man-made things not to money not to institutions not to corporations not to power We are servants to God, not servants to servants of God. And that carried them. And that is a spirit that each one of us can learn because each of us was created in the divine image. This is not a Jewish thing. It's a lesson that we take from Jewish history and from the Jewish people. And trust me, not every Jew always themselves fully embraces it because it's challenging. But it's there for all of us to benefit from. And think about it, the United States of America was founded on these principles, the first words of the Declaration of Independence. We, we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, I would say all people, to make sure we are clear, are created equal, and endowed by their creator with inalienable rights. all. So as soon as you put the word creator in, the creator is beyond anything that's human. Is the creator black or white? Is the creator male or female? Is the creator Asian? Hispanic? European? No, those are social, cultural, racial definitions. The creator created them all and is beyond them all. Each of us, does the divine image have a color? Does the divine image have a shape and form? You don't need to be a deep spiritual thinker to understand that that the basic principle of soul is that a soul is, is colorless. A soul is shapeless in the context of human institutions. Labels are for clothing, not for souls. When you recognize that within yourself and then within others, you tell me, what is the result of that? The first result is that you will never be defined by what has happened to you. You will never allow yourself to be defined by an oppressor, by a master, by someone who owned you, whether it was the Egyptians or the people that owned the slaves, whatever it was throughout history. And number two, you look at others. They have a divine image. And you respect that. You may disagree with them, but everybody has a divine image. And that's why it's such an outrage I have no words for it, appalling, a travesty against God, against God, not just against each other, when one human being hurts another. You're tampering with God himself. Whatever gives you value, give that person value. You're basically destroying yourself when you hurt another. We don't feel it because that's the way the plan was. God concealed that integral, inherent unity that we all share. All parts of one larger organism. But that's exactly what's happening. You're desecrating, you're violating the divine image of another, which really means you're violating your own divine image. And this goes across the board, no matter who this is, whether it's a politician, whether it's a police officer, whether it's a simple person in the street, whether it's a leader, whether it's a spiritual leader. Anyone who does that is a crime against humanity, a crime against God. And the founding fathers recognized that. That's the foundations. They didn't say we're building an enterprise called a great business called the United States of America. We're going to make a lot of money. They understood that the principles of the foundations have to be put into place. And when you have that, everything else will follow. So I say to each of us, and I say especially to people who are oppressed or feel oppressed or were oppressed, do not let that define your existence not in the way of either continuing to be oppressed or in some way surrendering, and not by fighting and become that's your, that's your identity to fight. Obviously, I need to mention the wanton violence and crime to loot, to attack innocent people, is altogether, is just a big crime, as whatever happened to Mr. Floyd. Not to justify that, it's, they're all violence, they're all unacceptable attack on the divine image of human beings. But I'm going deeper. If I was sitting right now, and I hope I am sitting right now, with people who feel really angry, they feel they've been discriminated against, or continue to be, learn from Joseph, learn from the Jewish people, learn from history. And it's about you, it's not learning, it's not, I'm going to give you a lecture. It's your dignity, it's your life, it's your destiny. You own it, you control it. It's between you and God. God puts you in this place. The oppressor, if they indeed oppressed will get their day in judgment. Because they are responsible and accountable. This is not at all taking them off the hook, but you should not be shaped by that. That's why you don't find that the Jewish people after the Holocaust has established the state of Israel went for vengeance to blow up cafes in Germany or in Europe. Or to loot. Or, or any other violent activity. Why? Because that's not our vengeance. That's not, that means we're still defined by them. Are we angry? Of course we're angry. Are we outraged? Your blood boils when you see your own men, women, and children, what was done to them in the concentration camps, which I don't even want to articulate. But what do you do with all that rage? You do what Joseph did. You direct it toward positive growth. You want know to what the revenge? Ask a Holocaust survivor. You know what they'll tell you? They'll open up a photo album. Our revenge? My children, my grandchildren, my great-grandchildren. That I will not succumb and surrender to what they wanted to do to us destroy and annihilate us altogether? I have children here named after my father and my mother. I have grandchildren named after my brothers and sisters. And they will continue to live and thrive and hopefully try to fill the vacuum that was left as a result of those Kodeshim, those martyrs, that are, those holy martyrs that were taken from us. What about God? Aren't you angry at God? God allowing that? I have my things with God. Do you know something? How's anger going to help me? If anything, the Holocaust taught me and all other oppression taught me that I cannot trust human beings. I have to trust only God. I don't know his mysterious ways, but I'm not going to lie down and die. I'm going to dig deeper and grow. These are the words you'll hear from hundreds, thousands. This is the healthy approach to facing oppression, racism, discrimination, anti-Semitism. And again, not just theoretical. In real time, Real killings. What does it take a parent to see their children ripped away from them? Never to see them again. Don't even have a grave site. It takes a connection to the divine spirit and divine image in us that's impossible to describe. Each one of us, each one of you, every one of us, man, woman, child, black or white, religion, non-religion, whatever faith, race, culture, background, education, less education, more education. Whatever your position is, that doesn't define you all those things. Our lives matter. Why do lives matter? They matter because God put you here. And that's why they have indispensable value. They don't matter because someone gave you a promotion or someone treated you nicely. Of course you should be treated nicely because you're created in the divine image. You matter? As I write in my book, Toward a Meaningful Life? Birth is God saying you matter. You matter because you were born. Because you were given. A, by, it's your birthright. And no one can take it from you. You were given a divine indispensable mission. That's why you matter now and forever. And not just to yourself you matter. You matter to all of us. You don't do your part of your mission. It compromises us all. You need me and I need you. That's the story. That's why we matter. Often in this material world, we convince ourselves that value comes from being recognized, from having plaques on your wall, making more money, your social status, your youth, your looks, your power, your influence, your equity. I mean, I can go on and on. That doesn't define why you matter. Those are all arbitrary. They all can be taken from you. They all don't last forever. They all are subject to change. You get older, your value is not so high. Other people don't like you suddenly. Is that what defines you? No, what defines you, why you matter, absolutely matter? Not in a circumstantial way. Because you were born, you try to make yourself significant. No. What, what, how the world would be different if you were never born? You ever think about that? Do you feel that you are absolutely necessary? There's only one answer to that. Not because people tell you you're important, even if you have beautiful parents who love you. It's because God... The Creator put you here, shaped you in the divine image and gave you a divine mission. You keep that in mind your entire life. Whatever happens, yes, justice has to be served. But your life, you sow, you travel forward, you move forward, because that that's really your life story. You allow yourself to be controlled by others even through rebelling against them, then they're still in control. I mean, this is really the essence of all recovery, of all healing. All. Whether it's collective or individual. People dealing with abuse, with different violations of their being. Physical abuse, emotional abuse, psychological abuse, sexual abuse. Different addictions. It's all about rediscovering the value, the inherent value that you have. And you shouldn't be defined by shame And you shouldn't see yourself as a victim. Or even just a survivor. You are a beautiful soul no matter what. You've had setbacks. You've had deep challenges. Fine. Let's figure out how to work that through. But you must always hold on to knowing. With absolute certainty. Of your divine image. Your divine destiny. When you have that. Everything follows. Now, of course, we need short-term solutions because that can take time for people to realize. It needs education. and needs sensitivity. Short-term, that's why we have law and order. That's why we have a system of justice. Is it perfect? Far from perfect. Look, we've seen brutality, police brutality. We've seen other forms of brutality. But if we collectively and individually do not embrace this destiny of ours, this divine destiny, and each individual divine image, where are we going to be left with? This is why it's very clear. You look at the civil rights movement, you look at other movements. It was the Jewish people who were always most sensitive to anyone who was discriminated against. Anyone who experienced racism, prejudice, or other forms of persecution and oppression or affliction. Because we've been there. And the Torah, you know what the Torah says? Always be kind to the stranger. Because remember, you are once a stranger. In another land. Under the influence, under the authority of very often tyrannical and very evil forces. So always love the stranger, remember the stranger. What is behind that? Because the stranger is created a divine image as you are. And as you made it through and you learned to travel forward and forge ahead and look up and never look down and move forward, transcend your past, not become a product of it or definitely not a victim of circumstances. That's how you have to see every person and help them achieve that. That's why I feel compelled and I say this, again: as I'm an American, born in the United States, but I'm a Jew. The butt is only the 3,800 years of history. I feel compelled when you see the cities burning. You see the rage, you see the violence. Absolutely, everybody who's per- perpetrated a crime needs to be brought to justice. That's a given. But that too is part of the divine. Not because we're getting even, because we need to protect the people you have to protect sometimes a person from themselves they don't realize they have a divine image even a person in prison even a murderer has a divine image but they don't know how to access it to the point they've hurt others that's why there's justice that's why there is there is a a, a prison or other forms of punishment as a deterrent but above all to teach the person that's the whole goal of it is to teach them what they really should be like which is another discussion whether that's happening or not but that's the goal but above all, what makes you cry? These are all divine children. Everyone. The victims. I don't want to use the word victims, I said, but I mean victims of any crime. And the perpetrators. The perpetrators are responsible because they're doing it. But these are all divine, and people don't even, are not aware of it. So in the big picture, this is exactly what we should be teaching our children right now. Our children are seeing all of this. Again, this is a lesson for every person, every white person, every black person, every Hispanic person, every China person, Chinese, China per- person from China, Indian, European, Asian. I'm not going to go through all the countries. I just selected a few: Russian. These to teach us to our children from the youngest of age. You are created in the divine image, and every person on earth has been created in the divine image. You need to cherish that. You need to value it. And if you see someone you disagree with, or you see someone doing something wrong, so there are methods, there are ways to bring that person to justice, to bring, make them accountable. But you are not shaped and defined by that. If They hurt you, yes. Do what you need to do. Sometimes we have to defend ourselves in war. Not because we want to, but we have no choice. If it's a criminal act, bring it to the right authorities. Now you say, what happens if the authorities are corrupt and they want to trust? Okay, I didn't say it's easy. But our attitude has to be that. You tell me if 7.5 billion people on earth had this attitude, what would happen? I know it sounds idealistic, naive, you're dreaming. Not dreaming, because the fact of the matter is, these have become principles that we all now we all now build our lives on. This is the foundation of the United States and of so many other free countries around the world. All this brings to mind, I want to share with you. In 1995, my book, Toward a Meaningful Life, was published. I know it's a long time ago, previous century. It was, uh, thank God, it was a successful book, reached many people. There was a lot of media. At the time, there was an interview scheduled On uh, Sunday. Oh no, it wasn't Sunday, I'm sorry. It was the day, called the day before Yom Kippur actually, Erev Yom Kippur. An interview in Florida, a major radio show. There were no podcast then, there was barely an internet yet. Um, And uh, it was a big uh, thing. The member, the publisher called me, William Morrow, the publisher said, make sure, phone call, I think it was 11 o'clock in the morning, something like that. Okay, but as God would have it, as divine providence would have it, that morning was the verdict was released on O.J. Simpson acquitted. Remember the story? If the glove don't fit, you have to acquit. He was acquitted. And that became dominated all headlines. The streets African- Americans were celebrating. Many whites were grieving. You saw the racial divide, very obvious. So the radio producer. The interviewer called me and said look i love your book i would love to give it time but today nobody's interested in your book to be honest it's the headlines are oj simpson and i have to book other uh, guests that will talk about that timely i was taught, taught and I, my instinct told me hey you have an opportunity here don't give it up so i said to the i said to her got her name so long ago she said i said to her i'll talk about oj simpson my book actually has some suggested solutions now I frankly had no idea what I was going to say. I just was in the door. I'm not leaving. <laughs> You'll talk about O.J. Simpson, great, because I've heard you. I see you're an excellent uh, you, you can com- communicator. So, but make sure we got to talk about this. So I said sure. The next day, eleven o'clock. It's the day before Yom Kippur, the holiest day of the Jewish calendar. My colleagues in Brooklyn were all running around synagogue and going to the mikveh, and it was a very different world than now and preparing for the Holiest Day, the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur. I get on the, radio, get on the phone, radio interview, she introduces me, and uh, so what are your thoughts about the O.J. Simpson verdict? I'll just cut to the... So I said, the first thing I want to tell you, I just felt I had to say it. There's a story with Labrador, Bardichev. Hasidic master of the 18th, 19th century, known as a lover, unconditional lover of all people. We could use people like that today. So once came Yom Kippur, and he was, he was the cantor, he was leading the service. So before he began the service, before he began Kaddish, Yisqadol V'Yisqadash Me'Rabba, he says, the Prussians say their, their king is the greatest. The Russians say their czar is the greatest. The French say their emperor is the greatest. And I, Levi Yitzhak Ben Sarashasha, say, Yisqadol V'Yisqadash Me'Rabba that the great name of God is the greatest and the most hallowed and sanctified of all. I said, I just want to tell your listening audience and myself and you, that while everyone's talking about O.J. Simpson and the verdict, which is clearly dominating the, the news, there's a small group of people who are probably many of them not even aware of it. They're busy preparing for the holiest day of the year to meet God, to ask for forgiveness, to begin anew, to look back at their iniquities and say, how can we transcend them? How can we rebuild a broken relationship? How can we reclaim love after it was somewhat compromised? And I just felt I should say that because this is now the moment when we're on the radio here. She asked, What is that relevant? I said, It's very relevant. Because knowing that you can do that, even amidst all the hoo ha and the noise and about O. J. Simpson and all the implications, all remember radio T, everybody was talking about. Everybody. Was it a travesty? Was it not a travesty, etc.? Was it just entertainment? And I mean, you know, you can imagine all the topics involved. To know that you can rise above it, today's your holy day. You're not defined by the news, by headlines, even important headlines. But even more so, I said, actually carries the solution. And I opened toward a meaningful life to the chapter on love. At the end of each chapter and beginning of each chapter, I have a little like stories. At the end of the chapter on love, I read the story with what happened in 1991 during the riots in Crown Heights. Yes, violent protests, looting, the killing of Yankel, an innocent Yankel Rosenbaum. The catalyst was the accidental killing of Gavin Cato, a young black boy, tragic killing, but it was accidental by all accounts. And this was a brutal, deliberate murder. And the police were nowhere to be seen. The mayor at the time, Mayor Dinkins, felt, let people vent. Let them express their anger. They thought it was a healthy outlet. It was bad times. I remember that summer. I was here. I was in Crown Heights. And I remember you couldn't go out in the streets. Windows were being shattered. People were being attacked. I mean, it was a real uh, pogroma that night. So you can imagine it created tremendous tremendous uh, tensions in New York. A lot of it was by, not by my neighbors in Crown Heights. It was outside forces that came in to take exploit the situation for their own agendas, criminal agendas or political agendas or power agendas or whatever it was, or hatred. I saw it with my own eyes. Nothing compared to this. This is far bigger and more national, even international. But interesting thing happened. This is what I write in the story, the story I quote in the chapter of love, the end of the chapter. And I'm saying it all on radio. The O.J. Simpson verdict, the day before Yom Kippur, 1995. Mayor Dinkins, who was responsible, Giuliani would take over after him and turn things around big time, came to the Rebbe for Sunday dollars. The Rebbe would give out dollars, Lubavitcher Rebbe dollars. Mayor Dinkins said said to the Rebbe, may the Rebbe give a blessing. There should be unity between the two peoples, the blacks and the Jews. And the Rebbe corrected him. And this is what I write in the book. Not two peoples. One people under one administration, one government, and under one God. Think about that. That is what the Jews celebrate the day before Yom Kippur. They're not caught up and Yom Kippur. They're not caught up. You know why? Because there's a divine image. And I said on the radio, I said to this, to the host, to the host, and to all the radio listen audience, it was had I think millions of listeners. I said the the real answer to all these divides is not just are you right or let's or you're right, the blacks or the whites or the people pro oj anti oj We have to recognize that each person is created in the divine image. We're all one, under one God. Yes, we have diversity. Harmony within diversity. We are diverse. God created us as individuals. One person may be black, one person may be white, one person may be Hispanic. Different races, different cultures, different backgrounds, different education, different parents, different faiths. But we're all under one God. There's only one Hashem Echad, only one God. That's what the Rebbe was telling Dinkins, Mayor Dinkins. And it wasn't just a line. It It was actually the formula. That's the secret look at each person with a divine image, no one would be able to loot and be violent against another. And those that behave that way would be held accountable. That's also part of the divine image. You're not just dismissed and say, you know, you're an animal in the street, we're going to just ignore you because you're undisciplined, you're never educated, slave mentality, whatever, however, people dismiss Criminals. No, you're in the divine image, you're accountable. Accountability is part of the dignity of a human being. It's not part of getting even with you, it's part of the the divine image that we expect of you, that we expect that you rise and live up to that. All that is part of the story. So the real O.J. Simpson story I told her is the story, who are we? In whose image were we created? What is true value of life? Why do we matter? Why does life matter? Why do lives matter? Because of that divine. And when that's desecrated through murder, and I'm not here, I'm not the jury, I'm not going to discuss the O.J. Simpson case per se because that was not what I wanted to address. I want to address that racial divide to the point of real anger and hatred. That needs to be addressed. That comes from somewhere. It's rooted in the fact that God, as the mystics say, created a symptom and concealed the inherent unity, integral unity that we all share. Because that's part of the purpose for us to come into a world where we don't recognize our commonality, when we don't recognize our divine mission and we work on it. But we come to realize that we are spiritual entities on a physical journey, not physical entities on a spiritual journey. And when we recognize that, that is the ultimate solution to the racial divide, to the pandemic of hatred and rage, to our cities burning, to all forms of racism and discrimination and persecution, on all ends, that is the ultimate solution. And we can do it. Because that's who we really are. So the question is, how can we get this message out there? To each person. In a way that resonates from the heart to heart. That resonates. That you should feel your inner value. Your true dignity. And I say this to anyone listening. To my brothers and sisters of all backgrounds. And all races and all colors. You are created in the divine image. Never forget that. You have a great destiny to live up to. You have an indispensable mission to fulfill that you and only you can fulfill. And we need each other. We're all musical notes in a large composition. So antithetical to what we see here. Not just no music. Chaos. War. We could reverse it. We could learn to grow from through our oppression, through racism. Not just transcend, but grow. Teach each other and then come to a world where we actually see ourselves as seven and a half billion and counting divine images, well, I should say pieces of one larger divine, each one created in a divine image, your shape and form, all critical and necessary components in the large cosmic symphony. We have to ask ourselves the most critical question right now. Our cities are burning. Are you part of the problem or are you part of the solution? This has been simon jacobson meaningful life center meaningfullife.com where we have programs and offerings that address this challenge that we're facing now the pandemic the covid 19 pandemic and so many other issues that the human condition is dealing with now please let's join together as i said we are all part of one larger whole let's join together share like Comment. I'd love to hear your feedback. Even your critique. Yes. And may God bless you. May God bless America. May God bless the world. May we discover this unity. May all the negatives of the pandemic, the health pandemic, the pandemic of rage and violence and all of that, all come to an end. But more than an end, we should come out greater and stronger. As they were oppressed, they thrived and they flourished. Thank you very much. This program is brought to you by the Meaningful Life Center. Please help us continue our programs. Make even a small contribution at MeaningfulLife.com donate.